Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, June Grovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping at our usual time this week on Thursday, August 23rd at 10.30 a.m. As always, news can happen fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Margot Sanger-Captain, The New York Times. Good morning. Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo. Good morning. And Joanne Cannon of Politico. It's good to be back. I've been yes. away a few weeks. I'm glad you had a nice vacation. So next week is our special Ask Us Anything episode. We have a lot of good questions, but we can always use more. Is there some health policy quirk you've always wondered about, something complicated you want explained? Send us your questions. We are at what the health, all one word, at kff.org. Maybe we'll use your question on our special podcast. And, Margo, I'm going to give you all the nerdy ones. Oh, good. Can we talk about site-neutral payments? <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. You're going to get too excited if you let you do that. <laughs> and we have actual news this week. But first, we have some podcast news. Joanne. I hired Alice. <laughs> Yay. Yay. <laughs> so Alice Alston, who you all are used to listening to, will start working for with our political team on September 4th. Excellent. Very we're, excited. We're still here from both of you. So um, in the meantime, we have health news, too. Uh, Not only is the Senate here this August, which is kind of odd, they're normally out on recess, that's where the House is, but this year senators are not only here, they're doing something else unusual, they are debating the annual spending bill for the Department of Health and Human Services. I read someplace this week on Twitter, I think, that it's the first time the HHS bill, which also includes funding for the Department of Labor and the Department of Education, has been on the floor in 15 years, but a quick check suggests this is actually the first full Senate debate on this bill since 2000. And one, uh, and yet it seems to be not as big a deal as it normally would be. It doesn't come to the floor because it's something they all want to fight about. Um, what's going on with this bill, Alice? You've been up on the hill. Yes. So both sides are very invested in getting this done uh, in the most boring way possible. They even use that word uh, when I talk to some aides. Uh, they are trying to keep any crazy controversial poison pill amendments out of there. They just want this to pass. And this is, we should mention, this is the bill that carries language uh, banning most abortion or most federal payment for abortions. Um, It has stem cell language. It has gun research, uh, gun violence research language. I mean, there's an awful lot of things that kind of live in this bill from year to year. I assume none of those are being touched. It's just, will they add more things to it? Exactly. And obviously, many lawmakers would like them to see would like to see them add more things to it. Rand Paul has his defund Planned Parenthood amendment perennially. And uh, on the other side, there's amendments related to the ongoing family separation issue and making ORR improve certain facilities. That's that the, hold the, the HHS office that, that mm-hmm. oversees the separated kids. Yes, that, that houses them, um, that detains them, really. And um, so those uh, are not likely to make it in, although, you know, everybody's having their push uh, and it should come together this week or next week. And yesterday they were actually talking on the floor about an amendment that would um, do what was in the Trump administration drug price blueprint, which is require drug ads to include pricing information. There was a classic Chuck Grassley tweet tonight with (laughs) last night with like numerous typos. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Saying that he thinks this is a great idea and they should do it. The bill, you know, there's a lot of question about exactly what that would look like. This is something that Secretary Azar mentioned a couple of two, three months ago already by now. Of course, it doesn't doesn't belong on an appropriation. 
conference bill, but that's a whole nother. They, to, as Julia, you know, they whatever what they put on an appropriation bill is what belongs on an appropriations bill. Um, but the, the idea is that you put the price of a drug in. You know, we already have all those side effects, um, and on the drug ads, and they would also add the price. Although, you know, what what everybody pays a different price, so they'll have to sort of slug out what price they're talking about, and you know whether. You know, sometimes people see something that's expensive and think it's better, which is a whole long story. Um, I'm not sure how much impact it would have, but it's politically popular. Um, it's bipartisan. People think it's a cool little idea, so it might or may or may not end up on the bill. But the other thing about the bill, I mean, they haven't, I mean, Julie and I remember last time they did it, it's years, but they did have that budget deal earlier this year, and they slugged out a lot of these issues, and it was an unusually compromising, given the Congress hasn't functioned very well for a while now. On that budget deal, you know, both sides got something. So some of the that paved the way for what they call regular order. They're actually legislating and appropriating and, and you know not omnibusing, throwing everything. Together this the this is packaged. It's, it's with a mini the bus. De- with the defense bill. It's but the, they've gone through the two biggest and most controversial bills are packaged together. It's sort of guns and butter, but the or you know <laughs> guns and cholesterol or whatever. But the the. <laughs> It is sort of normal. <laughs> I mean, it, relatively speaking, it's pretty normal. And but I think one one in an abnormal time. So I think the budget deal, whatever month that was, sort of let them, um, you know, give them more money to spend. So I still wonder they, if they're... the Republicans got more money for the defense for defense, and Democrats got more money for sort of social policy, and everybody is fat and happy. It's it's, it's pretty clear this bill can get through the Senate. The question is, can they re, you know reconcile it, it with what? Yeah, with what? I mean, what's already come through the House that doesn't have nearly as much. I mean, just funding levels alone. Right. Well, as as they often do, the Senate is sort of pretending the House doesn't exist for right now and just sort of trying to get their own done, and they'll worry about so that. they can they can go home basically in October and say we did all this spending. Bills. Yes. We didn't get them to the president, but we passed them all. Remember the big, the big issue that's threatening the shutdown is actually immigration, and we none of us know how that's going to play out. We won't until probably October. So, I mean, Trump is threatening to shut down the government if he doesn't get his wall. So, um, you know, topics change quickly in Washington, and and that, you know, are we going to have a shutdown a month before elections? Who knows. Well, another another big campaign health issue is opioids. Um, the House passed a whole bucket of bills to address the opioid epidemic earlier this summer. And we just got some really scary, although preliminary statistics from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that 72,000 people died of drug overdoses in 2017. That's basically one every eight minutes. And about 49,000, this is a preliminary figure, but about 49 of that 72, that 72,000 is all drug overdoses. About 49,000 were opioid. It's opioids being defined as legal painkillers, legal painkillers being taken illegally, and heroin and other synthetics. So the so the Senate is talking about doing an opioid bill since the House has done all of theirs. Um, but there had been some muttering about maybe they didn't want to do it till after the election because they didn't want to give the Democrats something to campaign on. Where where are we on this Senate? Doing something about opioids. So I am mostly relying on reporting from Joanne's team. But, you know, as, <laughs> That's of, okay. a, as well, of a few weeks ago, it, yeah. you know, what it seemed like was that the Senate was working on this. The committees had passed the bills sort of through their markup process. There, I think there was sort of bipartisan and relatively uh, high level engagement on the substance of the bills. But there was a sense that they were not going to go to the floor, both because I think there's a lot of other stuff that the Senate wants to do, but I think also because the politics are such that the kind of vulnerable incumbent 
red state Democratic senators, I think a lot of them could really campaign on having had a role in this process. And indeed, many of them did have bills that they sponsored and have states where they have a big opioid problem. So I think McConnell's thinking, at least for a while, was we'll get to this baby in the lame duck. Uh, But the president tweeted about it this week. He said that he really uh, wants a bill, uh, one of the many pieces of this package. He said he wanted something to prevent opioids from being smuggled through the mail. And after that, uh, there were some indications that, in fact, uh, this may come to the floor and, and be voted out of the Senate uh, before the election. Yeah, we've been actually hearing mixed things about the timing. I mean, for a while, Mark was right, while we were hearing that, you know, it would be after the election. And then we were hearing it would be after Labor Day, but before the election. And then there have even been some murmurings that they could get it done before Labor Day. That's not very likely. It's not 100% impossible. I'd be surprised, but like I wouldn't drop that of shock. Um, I think sort of September looks sort of likely now. Again, with an unpredictable, everything always changes now. But I, I actually And we think have that, a Supreme Court nomination. Yeah, I mean, I, but I, in I, heaven I, I knows do think what they state. sort of ended up deciding it's in everybody's interest to try to do it. I mean, it, it, I don't think that the Republicans necessarily felt that it was a huge winner for them not to go home with it done, that it you know, was just going to blame the Democrats. I, I think that um, 72,000 dead people uh, sort of gets your attention. It's, yeah, kind of an incentive really, for them to do something. It's really frightening. Yeah. It is. It's very and scary. One thing that's interesting to me about these bills is they are bipartisan, sort of on their face. The House bills have passed through the House, so we kind of have the vote counts. And we saw in the subcommittees, in the committees. And there are like dozens of them because everybody wants it's their the own fashion, bill. It's the fashion accessory, right? <laughs> if you're a, a semi-vulnerable Republican running, and, and they're all up in Congress, you want your name on an opioid bill. That's why they did 52. I think it was at 52. is something like 52 bills in the House that then they all packaged together in, in one big one. But yeah, I mean, everybody had a, a bill after, you know, their name on something. But it's sort of, I think the kind of veneer of this process is bipartisan in the sense that like no one really wants to vote against an opioids bill. But if you talk to the Democrats, uh, you know, some members on the record, but also if you talk to sort of the staffs on background, what they say is like, this is not the opioids package that we really want to pass. And we think that some of these bills are like, the way they describe them is they're not going to make things worse, but they're probably not going to have a big effect anyway, that some of them are kind of ceremonial and data collection reports. Yeah, yeah there's like a lot where it's like I passed, I sponsored an opioids bill that passed, but there's not a lot of substance there. Um, and Well, there were 50 of them, yeah, I mean, so you can imagine they can't that, all be that substantive. But I spent yeah. some time, I guess about a month ago, talking to experts on the crisis, mostly in the public health community, but uh, sort of, you know, a number of academics about like what are the things that you that would be the most effective in actually reducing the number of opioids deaths and helping reduce the number of people who have opioid use disorder. And generally speaking, they said that there was not that there were a lot of things missing from this package that really could help a lot. So this package is largely focused on what I would describe as prevention. So it's a lot of things around prescribing of opioid drugs, trying to reduce unnecessary prescribing, trying to monitor patients who are going to multiple providers to try to get drugs. There are things around disposing of unused opioids. There, I think there are two bills about that. Uh, so it's like a lot of things around the kind of medical prescription side of opioids. And we definitely know that the medical system had an important role to play in kind of creating this crisis, that there was just an explosion of uh, prescriptions for these drugs that were probably unnecessary and that that fueled the crisis in two ways. One, that people who got legitimate medical prescriptions and had all of these pills and took them uh, themselves became dependent or addicted to them, but also that there was a lot of diversion, that there were people who got a lot of prescriptions and then were kind of selling them on the black market to people who uh, then became addicted to them that way. So I don't want to discount the kind of medical side of things, but 
the the thing that really jumps out at you when you look at this latest CDC report about who's dying and why is that it really seems like the crisis has shifted a lot from one that is primarily about new people becoming addicted to opioids as a result of things the medical system is doing to more of like a poisoning crisis where you have this population of people maybe growing but probably not growing very fast anymore who are addicted to opioids but that the kind of black market supplies of heroin are increasingly contaminated with fentanyl, which is a stronger opioid. And that means that it's a little bit less predictable what dose you should take. And so if you're used to taking a certain dose of heroin and you one day take something that turns out to be all fentanyl or largely fentanyl or some mix that you're not used to, uh, that then you can overdose very quickly and you can die. And that a lot of the deaths, a very sharply growing number of the deaths over the last two years are due to fentanyl or fentanyl in combination with other drugs. And so I think that is going to require a different set of public policy responses. Right. I mean, I think that um, there, there, we sort of have three opioid crises. We have a straight heroin crisis. We have um, patients who got drugs and didn't sell them but got addicted or dependent on drugs that were prescribed, maybe not so smartly prescribed, but prescribed. And we've got the black market of the the legal drugs being marketed illegally that we just talked about, and and the diversion they, problem, right? And and they mingle. I mean, there's overlap, and 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 they're hard to. They're they're sort of. We're de- one reason it's so hard is we do have three crises and then fentanyl thrown on top of it. So um, I, I mean, I think that the public health community agrees that they don't think that this package of bills is a panacea, but I do think they think it's progress. And and part of it is um, there are steps toward more treatment. There are steps toward allowing more providers to do the treatment for, for addiction dependency. Um, there is a sort of a baseline that it is oriented toward evidence-based treatment with medic- medication-assisted treatment, which, believe it or not, you know, not everybody believes. You know, Tom Price was not a fan of that. Um, the current HHS secretary is much more supportive. States like Texas are actually... Um, not a state you think of as a leader in mental health, but they are they are moving. They're telling some of these sober homes, no, you actually have to use medication-assisted treatment, that that's what people who are addicted to opioids need. Um, so I think that is it a solution? I don't know that there is a legislative solution. I mean, this is it took us this problem took years to get into. We didn't see it. Uh, how bad it was until it was a you know beyond a crisis. I don't know what word to use. It's beyond a crisis, um, tragedy tragedy crisis. Um, and I don't think one piece of legislation. I mean, I think it's going to take us a number of years to get out of it. And is this the perfect piece of legislation? I don't think you'll find anybody in the public health and addiction world who says ah this solves it. Do they think it's a step in the right direction? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. We don't know exactly what the Senate's going to do. It's going to be similar to the House. There's some privacy law issues are still being worked out and some money things being worked out. But it will be a treatment prevention orientation bill that will not get everybody in the country into treatment. I mean, Medicaid, which we talk about all the time on this podcast. I mean, one of the biggest tools for getting people into treatment is Medicaid. And the states that haven't expanded Medicaid have a bigger problem with treatment than the states that have. And there's also a lot of money. You know, this is not the only thing that Congress has done about opioids. There have been a couple of bills that have established grant funds that have gone out to the states. And that money is, you know, was disseminated last year, is getting disseminated this year. And when you talk to public health officials on the ground, I talked with public health officials in Dayton, Ohio recently, where they've had a huge problem and they actually have started to make a dent in it. You know, they say that money really helps and they're finally, they're really just starting to deploy it. So I think there is a sense that Congress is doing a number of things. There are these bills now that are kind of going to get 
campaigned on in the election. But there also are these grant funds that went out previously that are going to help as well. Which states were actually sort of slow taking up. The money went out about two years, uh, I think it was two years ago, after the 20th century, cure, 21st century Cures Exacto. Bill. Yeah. There, there, was, um, there was money for opioid treatment in there and some new programs in there and actually sort of getting from legislation into the community. And some of that is at the state level where there's been hasn't been as fast as it might have been. And, and NIH got money. There's research going on. There's NIH private partnerships looking for, you know, safer pain relief. There's a lot going on, but we're not at the end of this. Well, we're going to come back to this at some point, but... Moving on today, um, I want to talk about EpiPen for a minute. Um, well, I'm I'm allergic. Yeah, there you go. So <laughs> two years ago, EpiPen price increases were a huge story. I thought it was last year, but actually it's it was two, every year. It, yeah, it is every year. <laughs> two years ago, in particular, back to school drug price. Story. Yes, that's exactly what it is because you know for kids who are allergic to you know or adults peanuts, who are allergic right. to bees. Yes, but <laughs> kids who are allergic to peanuts need to have an EpiPen with them at school. Um, so we have a shortage. I, I feel that even though this is an audio broadcast that I should point out that Joanne today is dressed dressed as a bee. bee. (laughs) I'm wearing a yellow dress with a black stripe and my kids say, oh, that's the dress mom wears when she wants to convince the bees that she's one of them. (laughs) All right. Well, we had we had sort of two things on the EpiPen front. We had an actual generic uh, approved by the FDA. There had been there are other Way EpiPen is for those who don't know is a way to deliver epinephrine to somebody who's having an allergic, a serious allergic, life-threatening allergic I reaction. I call it my conflict of interest pen. <laughs> Your conflict of interest <laughs> pen. Um, but and there are other ways to deliver. It just delivers epinephrine, and there are other ways to deliver epinephrine. But EpiPen is sort of the the the, the most foolproof of those. Um, Mylan, the company that makes it, um, has its had its own authorized generic, I guess is what it's called. Um, but there wasn't really a generic. So now there's there was apparently... one other generic that was offered and and. Um, it was rejected, pulled, yeah, and yeah. there was another brand rival a couple of years ago that yeah. was a different kind of auto injector that but came and went. Yeah, now there's an actual generic. But the the thing that caught my interest is not just that there's a generic, but also that uh, the FDA came out last week or was it this week and said, um, by the way, those of you who have who are carrying your EpiPens, it turns out you don't have to replace it as often as the label says. You, and this is the second time that's happened, right? I mean, these are expensive. That's what they, yes, they yeah, become should, expensive. They went up to. Six hundred bucks for us, which yeah, two. which is what caused the prices the crisis two years ago. Is right. that all of a sudden they went from being what like two hundred fifty dollars to like six hundred dollars? They have a one year expiration date, and unlike some things, if you take an unexpired drug, I mean, you have a few minutes with an EpiPen. If you have a fatal, potentially fatal allergy, you need an EpiPen that is in fact working <laughs> and and not expired and not expired. And they're, they're sensitive to temperature changes and so forth, and and um. They told you, well, I mean, it used to have a one-year label, so you'd have to buy a new one, even if you didn't use it and you, you know, didn't get you a, keep you didn't replacing eat a peanut it. or you didn't have an attack or anything. Um, you'd have to replace it every year. It's gotten more expensive. Or your and then they said, it's, yeah, my bee dress didn't work. I still have an EpiPen, even where, where my bee dress. Um, the, um, I have a ladybug dress, too, but that's a different issue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Julie's happy to have me back. <laughs> <laughs> we missed you. <laughs> um the um, so they, it was a twelve year a twelve month expiration and then like last year they said oh actually you can keep it for eighteen months and now it came out the other day that some of them you have to check your lot label um, are, are a few months even longer so yeah I, I think it's four I, months I, more right, I checked my lot label this morning and um, 
you know, I think as a reporter, all of us get questions from colleagues and friends about, you know, healthcare, like, and also friends who don't understand that, like, understanding health policy doesn't mean, like, we know what medicine they should take. But, <laughs> you know, none of us are MDs, none of us, are, you know, here there are some writers who are, but none of us are. Um, and, you know, we're used to that. I, 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 I think I get more questions about EpiPen shortages from colleagues than anything else, and it's every August. Yeah. It's, um, but but I, I'm, I'm just sort of curious as to... I'm not allergic to ladybugs. I just have a dress, yes. right? Why why suddenly <laughs> it's okay? Now that there's we're in a shortage, it's okay to keep them longer when it wasn't, when the price first went up. Right. But that's... I, I mean, I think the thing about EpiPens, and this has driven the difficulty of other manufacturers to make generics historically, and I think probably also guides the FDA's thinking and being a little bit conservative about expiration dates is a thing that Joanne said, which is this is a treatment for a life-threatening emergency. And one that's immediate. It's, yeah. an emerg- it's really an emergency. It's minutes. So I think there is a desire on everyone's part, and especially on the FDA's part, to make sure that you know if you're having a life-threatening allergic reaction and you need this treatment within minutes, you want to make sure, A, that the device doesn't fail. You know, If you're using this device that's supposed to, you push a button and it automatically injects the epinephrine, and you want to make sure the device is totally foolproof. And then you want to make sure that the medicine that you're getting is going to work. And so you know, I think that myelin made a really good device and it was hard to copy. It was hard for the generic manufacturers. You know, epinephrine is cheap and anyone can get it. It's a couple of cents. The the, stuff inside the, it's a shot. It's a shot that you auto inject. You self inject or someone injects for you. You carry it around. It's all set up to just, if you've never seen one, it's, it looks, it's not really, it doesn't look like a pen. It just looks like a magic marker sort of. It's like a vial and you, you know, you stab it into your, into your thigh. And the stuff inside really is cheap. It's this apparatus, this plastic thingamajig that lets you auto inject. A delivery mechanism. Thingamajig. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, and and you know that you don't need a medical degree. You know, everybody in my family knows how to use it, and you know, kids learn how to use it themselves, and um, that's somehow or other worth six hundred dollars. But anyway, I think I think it has led to there being sort of a conservative approach to this. Like we don't want to really we don't want to have a huge margin on the expiration date. We don't want to just approve something that's almost as good. But it seems like on both of those fronts, uh, the FDA and and the manufacturers are making progress. uh, So there may be more choices. I I should say that in general, when you look at the entrance of generics into a market, the kind of really big price differences tend to happen when there are a bunch of generics that are competing with one another. So this is a situation where you have the kind of brand name Mylan pen, which is like 600 bucks a pen. Uh, they it's have a two-pack. It's a two-pack, sorry. Uh, then they still, have their own bucks. authorized generic, which is like, how much, how much is that one? I think that's like three. Three, 300-ish. But, you know, but it was cheaper for me to use a coupon to print <laughs> out to get the brand. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's drug policy in America. And we yeah. don't know what this the price of this new Tiva generic that's been approved will be. And probably it will be less than 600, but not substantially less. But, you know, if you want to start seeing the price of an EpiPen start to look a little bit more like the price of the epinephrine that you can buy for cents on the dollar, it's going to take more entrance. And, you know... Uh, Scott Gottlieb and the FDA have really emphasized trying to lower the barriers for, or not lower the barriers, but increase the processing speed of applications for generics in various forms. And I'm sure uh, the FDA would love to see additional manufacturers come in, too. I bet they would. And presumably it's a it, it's a big market, so people are trying. All right, we're going to move on. Um, next topic is my extra credit because this is what I spent most of the week on. Uh, NYU Medical School announced that it will stop charging tuition, which is more than $50,000 a year, starting now, including refunds for students who are currently enrolled. The stated goal is to lower medical student debt so more graduates will go into primary care. But economists and just about everybody on health policy Twitter uh, suggest that basically giving a $200,000 gift to upper middle class and rich students might not be the best way to accomplish that goal. 
Well, I think it's a really great marketing strategy for NYU Medical School. I mean, if I were applying to medical school tomorrow, like I would definitely rather go to a good free medical school than a good expensive medical school. But doctors love to complain about their debt. And I think there's a good reason why they do, which is their debt is substantial. It's very typical that someone leaves medical school with six figures of debt, which is a lot. I and it the, is, the median is 192000 in 2017. Whoa. That's a lot of debt. It's and that, a lot of debt. And that, that is college debt on top of that. Mm-hmm. Right. That's including, I think. That's yeah, all yeah, the, debt. yeah the 192 that includes pre-med. And they tend to go into residency programs immediately upon graduating from medical school. So they kind of have a lower level of pay for a few years. So that debt like really hangs over them. And if you look at physicians in other countries, they tend to graduate with no or or much less debt. The cost of medical education tends to be largely subsidized by the government in other countries. So I think U.S. docs kind of look around and they're like, this is this unfair burden that we have to carry around. But there is a reason why uh banks and the government are willing to lend a lot of money to uh, physicians in training. And that is because doctors pretty much with 100% certainty succeed in repaying their loans. Doctors are paid very high salaries relative to almost any other professional in the United States States economy. They have almost guaranteed you know, employment. employment because there is considered to be a shortage of doctors. We need doctors, and uh, it's hard to become a doctor. So, you know, if you have a bad one, it's hard to replace them. I'm, I'm not saying that doctors are bad, but I'm just saying that you have to do something really bad to not be employable as a doctor somewhere. And, you know, the statistics show that basically everyone repays their debt, and most doctors repay their debt within 10 years. And then they go on to earn six figure salaries for the rest of their lives. So, I think psychologically, the debt is really salient for doctors. And I do think that psychologically, the debt may be a reason why some lower income people who could become doctors choose not to, because they just think like six figures of debt is just going to ruin my life. And so, you know, we do see that the people that go into medicine do tend to be relatively higher income. And that is income. one of the stated goals here. To but encourage to encourage more people, economically diverse. Yes, a yes. more economically diverse um, uh, entrant pool to medical school. But I do think that the economists have a point, which is that doctors are able to pay their debt. They are able to then go on and make very comfortable livings for the rest of their lives. And that, you know, we people would not be necessarily applauding in the same way if NYU's business school uh, started giving all of its MBAs free tuition so that they could go work in the nonprofit sector when they graduated. Although, and, you and know, well, I think it's interesting <laughs> because we were, we've talked on previous podcasts about uh, how any sort of attempt to rein in healthcare costs would involve some sort of reduced compensation for doctors and doctors in the US and that's very you know politically dicey and nobody wants to say we should cut doctor salaries but um, like you said doctors in the US make way more than doctors in other countries and so having this lack of debt and lack of tuition could play into a future scenario in which there's some sort of universal health care system in which doctors might get paid less. I think that we may see other, but it also creates pressure on other medical schools. So I'm not sure that we'll see other medical schools doing exactly what NYU did, but I think you will see changes fast to how medical education is Although financed. I, will, I will point out that both Columbia and UCLA have introduced similar, although not quite as dramatic, programs. Only Columbia's is based on need. Uh, UCLA's is sort of like NYU's, although it covers uh, living expenses, too, which NYU's doesn't, by the way. It costs 30 grand a year, basically, to live in New York and go to NYU. Um, but the, uh, the UCLA one covers all expenses, not so cheap to live in Los Angeles either, uh, except it's only for 20 
20 percent of the class, but it's based on merit. Columbia is also doing 20 percent of the class, but it's based on need. So, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of different there, ways to look at this. things you could do with loan forgiveness, too. I mean, mm-hmm. if you want to encourage... the federal government does There's now. a ton of programs. So, I mean, just programs. to talk about a you policy could, You could do thing. more. I mean, yeah. the programs have not solved the... Pri- I mean, this country does not spend a lot of money on primary care. Everybody agrees we need more. I mean, the figures are pretty shockingly low, and how do exactly you define primary... You know, our, our OBs, primary care, whatever. But, you know, it's like... But I think we should say that there is not a lot of evidence that the debt load of individual medical graduates is driving their choice of specialty. There was a uh, study, I believe it was in JAMA a year or so ago, that looked at the level of debt of physicians in various specialties. And it turns out that actually the ones that go into primary care tend to have the most debt and the ones that go into certain high, not all, but certain high paying specialties tend to have the least debt. And so that just suggests to me that uh, just taking away the debt is not going to drive more people into primary care. You have to have some other kinds of incentives or you need to better understand why people are making the choices that they're making. And, you know, yeah, because it's not just the debt. You're going to make more money. In you're going to make fields. more money. And also, right. like, there's more prestige or maybe you're more interested. You know, maybe or you might lifestyle. be more interested the, in this the, particular the thing. The very first medical uh, education story I did was about lifestyle driving specialty um, the, uh, decisions that, you know, you want to you don't want to be on call or, you know, yeah, you, you want to work Yeah, just don't get called too often at midnight. Yeah. And I there's mean, also, you know, when we talk about the problems with the distribution of physicians in the U.S., there's often a discussion that we don't have enough primary care docs. I think there's also a view that there are parts of the country, rural parts of the country, more remote places and inner cities where uh, sometimes there are not enough physicians. And, you know, I think one sort of simple way of, of thinking about that is like, oh, well, if those people had less debt, maybe they would be more inclined to go there. But I also think, you know, physicians, just like a lot of other highly educated professionals who have spouses who may also be highly educated professionals, you know, they tend to want to cluster in big cities uh, They or in affluent suburbs. They want to, like, work with uh, colleagues. And I, th- I think getting physicians to practice in lower paying specialties and also to practice in settings and areas of the country where fewer physicians want to practice is, is a little bit harder than just forgiving their debt. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to move on. Um, there was a lot of state activity right, this can't week. Can we talk about the otter now? We're getting there. <laughs> One more, then we can talk about the otter. The, the California legislature has passed a bill that would ban short-term health insurance policies there, the ones that the Trump administration says is going to free everybody up. Um, uh, and in New Jersey and Maryland, uh, the federal government has given them approval to implement reinsurance plans that could bring down premiums for people who buy their own insurance. Um, what do we think the individual market looks like now? It's sort of the end of August where we're getting into that sort of nearing open enrollment for 2019. What, what is the state of things? Well, California is joining a growing list of states in doing something about the short-term plans. Um, I made a little list. We uh, should say the, gov- the governor has not signed this bill yet. And all the stories I saw said if he signs this bill. One one presumes that he will, but we don't know that. Right. And so some states like California want to ban the sale of short-term plans altogether. Hawaii is banning them for anyone who's eligible for an exchange plan, which is sort of going after one of the main criticisms, which is that this is going to drain all the younger, healthier people out of the market and make things costly and unstable there. Um, But it doesn't address what some other states are going after, which is that that the short-term plans are marketed in a misleading way and end up screwing the people who enroll in them thinking, oh, I can use this cheap short-term plan and get all the care I need. I'll be fine. Yes. (laughs) And then they get sick and, oh, you can't get medicine. You can't get, yeah. You can't go in the hospital on a weekend. That's still my favorite. (laughs) 
<laughs> don't do anything dangerous on the weekends. Um, so I I think that yes, we're we're going to see just states moving further and further apart on the state of their market, how much plans cost, how easy it is to get a plan, what plans are available. I think it's also going to be really different from state to state. That's sort yeah. of the takeaway that I'm getting is that, you know, one of the things the Affordable Care Act was trying to do was create – I mean, they they knew it would be different in states. That's why they wanted states to do their own marketplace places. But I think that the differences are getting magnified as we go on, as they do these things. That it, it, I mean, we're sort of back to the pre-ACA of it really, really, really is going to matter where you live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Stephanie, our, our- – a uh, podcast friend, uh, Stephanie Armour at the Wall Street Journal, had a really wonderful story about this a few weeks ago, kind of looking at how much it really is going to matter where you live. That the you know the Affordable Care Act was designed to kind of create a little bit more standardization in the healthcare system, make it so that you had access to the same options wherever you lived. Uh, I think that is is, I think the Supreme Court ruling that made the Medicaid expansion optional obviously dealt a huge blow to that goal because I think, you know, there the places where uh, low-income people can't get access to Medicaid are just radically different than the places where they can. But now we're going to start to see more divergence in the way the individual markets function too. And so there's just going to be much more geographic diversity in what kind of policy environment there is and what, ho- what health insurance options are available for people. The okay. reinsurance thing is interesting because that cuts across political lines in a way a lot of other things uh, don't right now. Yes, it's, it's, it's bringing, bringing down yeah. premiums turns out to be bipartisanly popular. Yes, so you're seeing all, all kinds of states um, and you're seeing um, HHS being supportive of states pursuing that goal. Although they weren't last year when they were they were trying. There were a bunch of states that were yes. tried to get in under the wire last year and couldn't. It's interesting that they're... We're seeing a string now, though, coming, yeah. coming yeah. out and getting approved. All right. One one last item that Joanne provided. Um, We don't talk very much about environment and health, but we should. When I landed in Chicago last week on my way home from Missouri uh, for what turned out to be a longer layover than scheduled, the city was actually covered with smoke that had drifted from the wildfires out west. Um, And apparently out west, it is so bad that the Seattle Zoo has trained an asthmatic otter to use an inhaler. At what point do we start paying attention to this as a health issue? Well, first of all, we should say that Sarah Cliff, who's our resident otter, otter expert yes. and otter <laughs> aficionado, is on maternity leave, leave and missing this story. No, I mean, it was one. I, I noticed it on Twitter last night, and I, I, and I wasn't sure it was real. Like, I clicked back and back and back to make sure this was actually a real thing because it is easy to be. There is some fake news on Twitter. Um, and this is a real otter with a real asthma problem, and they've taught this otter how to use an asthma inhaler. And, um, I mean, I was just out in California, and we just had it, you know, we were supposed to go to Yosemite, and we could not go. And then we tried to make other plans, and I there were places in the north that are pretty and nice and are not on fire, but because the smoke is everywhere, we just gave up trying to go somewhere. And it is a health problem. It, I mean, I don't know, you know, there are people who are... You, they're breathing smoke for weeks at a time with these fires. Not only are the fires more intense, the fire season is, is um, lasting longer. So, I, you know, to really mix up some kind of zoological metaphor, I think the otter is a canary <laughs> <laughs> in our sort of ecological coal mine. Um, the the um, I mean, it's sort of a cute otter, but by definition, I guess Sarah would say all otters are cute. But you know, it just sort of like it it, it caught my attention because it just says a lot. And also in air pollution news, the uh, Trump administration uh, just uh, pulled back the clean power plan and has put out its own proposal for uh, power plant regulation and. 
their own estimates uh, suggest that these changes that will uh, result in, I think, something like 1,400 more deaths. deaths. So, you know, air pollution. A year, a year. Air pollution is is not as bad as it used to be. You know, the I think that there have been a lot of improvements in public health related to air pollution. But I think both of these things are reminders that uh, you know the air that we breathe can have an effect on our health and longevity. And yeah, this is like proportionate yeah. effect on um, marginalized groups and low income people and That's people right. with asthma and older people and anyone who had hoped to be outside in Yosemite. But the, um, <laughs> no, I mean it's it is a health problem. And it's a health problem for months every year now. It's not like okay, there's three bad days and I'm going to stay inside with a fan. It's a significant public health problem. It is, particularly in the West. All right, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. I have done mine already. Who wants to go next this week, Joanne? Um, Some of you may remember that a few months ago, um, our our reporters at Politico discovered that the um, CDC chief, Brenda Fitzgerald, had invested in tobacco stock and some other problematic investments while she was CDC chief. And by the next day, she was no longer CDC chief. (laughs) So we spent several, it took us a couple of months. We checked, we got curious about the state requirements for public health officials, for officials in general, but we were looking specifically at the state uh, state rules. And they're really lax and they're really hard to interpret. It's just a really lousy system. So when that was the headline, lax state ethics rules leave health agencies vulnerable to conflicts, we did find a few officials that had conflicts, but we, we more found that we couldn't, we just couldn't tell that the rules are so they're vague in some states. They're not enforced in some states. They don't exist in other states. And access, public access really varies. Some states we called and said, you know, can you get us the disclosures? And we had it lickety split. Others, you have to pay to have them mailed to you. In Maryland, you have to actually go in person to Annapolis and get them, ask for them. You have to stand there and say, please, pretty please. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it just, it's, it's not that we found so many abusers. It just, it made us not, it made us feel like the system's not safe, that you don't know who's got a conflict, and these officials have a lot of power over our lives. So it was it it was a tedious process, but we ended up with a good story. Margot, I wanted to draw your attention to an article by Melanie Evans in the Wall Street Journal called "What Does Knee Surgery Cost?" If you know, and that's a problem. And she focused on a hospital in La Crosse, Wisconsin, called Gunderson, that is often you sort of held up as a good example of a place that's doing a lot of forward-thinking things. And the most amazing fact in the story to me is that they wanted to figure out what it cost the hospital to do a knee replacement, which is an extremely common surgery that hospitals around the country do all the time. And it took them 18 months to find out the answer. Um, and the answer was that they that doing a knee surgery cost about a fifth of what their list price was for the procedure. And there's lots of other stuff in the story, which I recommend reading, and there are some uh, great charts in there. But it's just, it is a reminder of how weird the hospital sector is. I mean, could you imagine any other business sector in which they did not know the cost of one of their most common products? And or that it, it took them 18 months to figure or it out. Or that it would take 18 months to figure out. Alice. <laughs> Um, mine is a great uh, collaboration between uh, Kaiser Health News and The New York Times uh, about vitamin D and how uh, some of the benefits may have been wildly overhyped. Uh, and th- I'm thinking back to when I went to college in Ohio and I was worried that because in Ohio you don't see the sun, I would get vitamin D deficient. And uh, maybe as a, a younger, healthy person, I shouldn't have been so worried. Um, this article talks about how the main 
doctor, Dr. Hollick, who's been the evangelist for vitamin D and thinks that everyone should get tested, everyone in the country should get tested, and that there's an epidemic of vitamin D deficiency and everyone should take supplements and et cetera, et cetera. Um, he is getting a lot of money from um, the, the supplement industry and the testing industry and even the tanning bed industry, um, much to the chagrin of some of his colleagues and uh, some of the um, more recent, more rigorous studies show that not everyone needs to get tested, only certain groups that are at risk of osteoporosis and other bone-related uh, diseases. Um so, very interesting there. It is quite a read. Well, that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Please get in your questions for next week. Uh, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. At Sanger Katz. At Alice Olstein. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.